Go ahead and turn in your scriptures to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I do want to take a moment to pray again and specifically to mention the different folks in our church uh, that stand in various needs. So Titus chapter 2 will be the focus of our reading. And as you're turning there, let's uh, bow again. Let's call on the Lord's name for his help. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the great shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You're the great physician. You've come to heal our souls by your grace. And we thank you for that, praying again that we would know the grace of God this morning, especially as we come to the word of God. Father, you care for your people. You give them help in all of their needs. You uh, delight to relieve uh, your people of their misery and their distresses. We see this in the faithful healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray we would know that uh, in the lives of this congregation. We mention again, David, we are earnest uh, to ask you, to even beg you that you would do uh, beyond what we could ask or think, that by your power you would be pleased to spare his life and bring him through, that you would draw near to him and give him the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ and thank you for the confidence he exhibits in you as a good, sovereign, powerful God, even in these trying times. Draw near to him. And may he lean on you, and may his family do so as well. Lord, we pray for others who are uh, in need in our congregation. Pray that Nancy Smith would continue to recover well from COVID and make a full recovery. Thank you that her case uh, has seen a lot of improvement and that she's known uh, your help. We think of other friends and family that may have the virus or are getting over it. Pray that you would show them mercy, show them grace. We, we all have, it seems at this point, friends and family in need. Our co-workers, Lord, we, we ask of your mercy and ask for you to be kind, to even spare uh, our church uh, further distress or our area, that you'd be pleased to push back uh, against the virus and relieve our, our community and our country of this burden. Lord, I pray we'd listen to your voice. What are you trying to tell us during this time? I, no time is wasted. I pray we would use it to a good eternal end, but we also pray you would bring it to an end that we may uh, be able to worship you ordinarily and be free of uh, the ongoing trial. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your church during this time. The kingdom of God goes forth. We pray for churches in the area that you would uh, watch over them and even bless their ministry during this time. We think of our friends at Mount Calvary as they'll host the presbytery soon and ask for uh, God's mercy to be shown during that event and their ongoing worship. We pray for our campus ministers. We think of uh, John Boyd at Anderson and Whatever their ministry looks like this term, I pray it be fruitful, even in a different circumstance. Thank you for Dale's ministry among us as he's begun already to preach and teach here. And pray you'd bless him as he continues to grow into that role and, and form relationships here in the congregation and study at seminary. Bless him to, the, to that end as you shape him into the minister you've called him to be. And Father, again, uh, watch over our families, watch over our, our friends, our community, and may we know your love and help. As we come to the word, Lord, we need the food of your word to feed our souls. So open our eyes and help us to understand and to believe and obey. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Titus chapter 2 is where I want to read this morning. This will be just a one-off message as I get ready for the study that we'll do here in the rest of the winter uh, and into the early spring, looking at selected psalms in the Old Testament, going through a selected uh, list of psalms from 
that great Old Testament book. But not only in, in getting ready for that, but often my first sermon in the year, I, I like to look at something that's foundational, something that's central, something that's particularly clear uh, as we look to follow the Lord uh, in another year that he may be pleased to give us. So Titus 2 lends itself well to that end. So Titus 2, let me read verses 11 through 14. And let us give our attention to God's word. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Amen. This for the reading of God's word. One of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, he was originally a tax collector. And he started to follow Jesus when one day, while Jesus was walking by the lake, he saw Matthew, or Levi as he's called there in that passage. He saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and he called Matthew to follow him. And Matthew responded. He began to follow the Lord. Later then, maybe that day or sometime later, Matthew hosted a great banquet in his home in honor of Jesus. And Jesus came to the banquet. And when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw that, they objected. And they complained, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what is Jesus saying with this response? Well, on one level, he's admitting that he is eating with sinners. But the sinners he's eating with are those who know that they are sinners. They know that they need God's grace. And since Jesus has come to manifest that grace, it's appropriate, it's acceptable, it's essential even that he eat and drink with sinners. But what this also means then is Jesus is implying that the Pharisees are sinners also, but they're the worst kinds of sinners. Sinners who do not realize that they need God's grace. In the passage we've read today from Titus, it begins with the phrase, for the grace of God has appeared. And that refers to the event we celebrated at Christmas and that God willing will celebrate all year long. The appearance of God in the flesh, Christ's coming to earth for our salvation. When he came, that was the saving act, the appearance of grace. It gives full expression to the grace of God. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that grace was inoperative before he came. It was all law and works in the Old Testament. Then grace appears. That's not what we mean. What we mean, though, is that Jesus' appearance accomplishes what God's grace had promised long ago and brings it to the forefront, puts it out there clearly and fully, the grace we need. So what then is grace? We're going to use this word today. What does it mean? Well, the word itself means favor, gracious care, goodwill. There's even a few passages where it simply means help. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, my grace 
is sufficient for you. My help is all you need, Christ told to Paul. But when we look at the way the word is used throughout the New Testament, what's the big picture idea of grace? It's God's unmerited favor. The favor he gives us that we do not deserve, that we could never earn, and the favor and care that save us from our sins. Unmerited favor made possible by Christ's self-sacrifice. And what the Pharisees needed, and what the tax collectors needed, and really what all of us need is grace. God's favor, God's care to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this passage that we've read, it celebrates. Now, with the coming of Christ, grace has appeared. It's almost like Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings books or the films. He, he always appears when things are the darkest, doesn't he? Just when there's almost no more hope. That's when that character tends to appear in those stories. And that is how grace works. It appeared when we needed it the most. So my question for today for us as a church is, well, why do we need grace? Why has grace appeared in Christ? And the passage gives us three reasons. So let's look at them together. The first is because we need salvation. Verse 11 reads, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, I read often from the NIV. The ESV here and several other translations read, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And I think here that is the better translation. You see, the word translated bringing salvation, it refers to the saving act itself. It focuses on the one who accomplishes salvation. So I think the NIV translation offers salvation. I think it's too weak here. I think they, or I suspect, they translated it that way. Because when you say bringing salvation for all people, well, that may imply that all people are in fact saved. And so maybe they wanted to avoid that potential misunderstanding. In this instance, I'd risk the misunderstanding in order to keep the focus on the accomplishment of salvation. It's not merely available. It's not merely offered. It is. And we'll talk about that universal language in just a minute. But the focus is on it's been accomplished. Christ has appeared. He has brought salvation. Now, salvation, of course, means deliverance, means rescue. The coming of Jesus, life, death, resurrection, it rescues us. It accomplishes what has to be accomplished in order for us to be saved from our sins. Now, again, what does it mean to be saved, a word we use often? Well, it's common to speak of salvation in three senses. We're saved from sin's penalty. God forgives us the guilt of our sins. We are saved from sin's power. God gives us the Holy Spirit to transform us so that we can live godly lives of obedience for God's glory. And we are saved eventually from sin's presence. The coming of Christ one day will rescue us from these sinful bodies and he will create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what it means to be saved. And this passage actually touches on all three senses. We'll we'll try to highlight them as we go through. 
Last question then, how then are we saved? How do we enjoy this salvation Christ has accomplished? Well, the passage again, verse 11, says we are saved by grace. Unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor brings us the gift of salvation. We do not get what we deserve, hell, and we do get what we don't deserve, eternal life. In fact, look at the next chapter in Titus. It may be there on the very same page. It contains similar language. Chapter 3, look at verse 4. It says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. So there's kind of the other side of the coin. Grace is God bringing everything to you, doing everything that needs to be done. Well, how does it become a part of our lives? We receive it. We trust in it. We make it our refuge for eternal life. Verse 7 there in the next chapter even says, We have been justified, declared righteous by His grace. So how are we saved? By the work of God alone, received by faith alone, This is all by God's grace alone. Now the problem for us as humans, the natural problem we all face, is we may not think that we need to be saved. So the next verse, back in chapter 2, verse 11, it speaks of ungodliness and worldly passions. And we could look at those two ways. We might say, well, those, those things aren't really that big of a deal. We'll speak to that in a minute. Or we may say, well, I'm not in that group. I mean, ungodliness, worldly passions, I mean, that's those people. That's those people out there. That's not me. The fact of the matter is, we are all sinners by nature. We all do ungodly things. We all need to be saved by God's grace. And that's why we proclaim today good news. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. For all people. And that brings me back then to what I mentioned earlier. Salvation's availability. Why does verse 11 say that God's grace brings salvation to all people? Does that mean that all people are saved? Well, there's really no getting around the fact that other passages speak clearly of those who are condemned on the last day. It's an undeniable biblical truth. It's sobering. We wouldn't deny that, but there's just really no getting around that. So some might prefer to read all here in the sense of all kinds or all classes of people. Salvation comes to all kinds of people, but not everyone. Now, what I'll say is that that works in a lot of passages with this kind of language. That's common in our Reformed tradition. I just don't think it's necessary here. I think Paul is happy to emphasize that salvation is accomplished and that salvation is available. Paul can put the fact that Christ has done the work and even, as we'll see at the end of the message, that it will be successful. He's happy to put that right beside the truth that it is therefore universally accessible. That is, it is available to all who believe and to all who evidence their faith by a transformed life of good works. So God's grace has appeared because we all need to be saved. So let's go on to the second reason. 
We need grace. And that is because we need transformation. This is the second reason God's grace has appeared. The grace of God that brings salvation, that brings forgiveness, that includes the transformation of our thoughts, words, and deeds. And I want to be really careful how I put those two ideas or how we all understand how those two ideas relate to one another. So the idea is not you get saved by grace, but now let me tell you what you have to do. The idea is not, all right, God does the saving part, uh, now you do the transforming part. And the idea is certainly not, God's forgiveness is the good news, now let me just tell you the fine print. It's not a but between these two verses. The grace of God that forgives is the grace of God that transforms. And both of those are good things. Things we need and things at time we will want as the Spirit of God transforms us. So let's look at how verse 12 describes what God's grace does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. By grace, there are things we say no to and there are things we learn to say yes to. It's like clothing. There are certain things that we put off and other things that we put on. So what do we put off? What do we say no to? We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are the two things that Paul says we say no to. Now, ungodliness, it's a broad term. It simply means living without reference to God. Living without reverence towards God. So often when we think of ungodliness, we might think of really public, really violent, really sensational sins. And yes, those things are ungodly. But ungodliness can be subtle. Ungodliness can be making decisions without any thought of God in the decision-making process. Without factoring in, what does he want me to do? It can be pursuing a lifestyle with our work or our activities, and it just crowds out any time for spiritual activities. Is God the obvious center of your life, or do you live without reference to him? Maybe he's not in the picture, or maybe he's just tangential. Is he the obvious center of your life? The passage also says we put off worldly passions. And those are the sinful impulses that go against what God desires, what God wants. If you read Romans 1, it will give you a good list of those kinds of things. We bring those impulses under the control of the Spirit of God. He enables us to say no to those temptations. He gives us power to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And people may ask when trying to do this, well, what if those impulses don't go away? Perhaps they don't. Or perhaps their fire dies down very slowly. Regardless of our experience, we surrender them to the Spirit of God. We beg for his help. And we use the means God gives us to cultivate the virtues that are pleasing to him. And we may live with a lot of tension in our lives this side of glory. But we use the means and we set our goal on transformation. And let me say this too for encouragement. We don't stay overly focused on ourselves 
either. We focus on God's grace. Maybe you're not experiencing what you want to experience. You don't see the growth you want to see. Sometimes God sees growth, even when we don't, because it's the work of his grace. So what then do we say yes to? What virtues do we put on as our Christian's spiritual clothing? Well, Paul says the grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And in many ways, these are the opposite of what we just saw. We are, we are not slaves to our passions because the Spirit helps us control them. He gives us self-control. We do not mistreat one another. Rather, we live upright, righteous lives. And we don't live without reference to God. Rather, we live godly lives, lives that evidence the work of God within us. John Calvin describes these three terms as living soberly in relation to ourselves, justly in relation to others, and devoutly in relation to God. That's kind of the the general blueprint, roadmap for the Christian life. And the Bible will guide us down that path. Now, one interesting note about these virtues is that they are similar to the ethics the Greeks used to describe the virtuous life. Often when we think of uh, non-Christian society, especially Greek-Roman society, we think of paganism and evil, and so it was. But, you know, they did have a code of ethics. They did have a sense of this is how you ought to act. And the list was similar to what Paul gives here. So we might ask, okay, well, is Paul just saying live in accordance with societal decency? Whatever the general cultural way you should behave is, do that and you're good to go. Now, I don't think that's what Paul is doing. I think he's highlighting a point where Christian ethics may correspond with Greek ethics, but he does it in order to show how the Christian life goes deeper than those ethics, and that it has a very different basis. Let me illustrate that. The god Zeus, perhaps you're familiar with the god Zeus from Greek culture. He possessed the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. But you know what else he did? He lied, and he was immoral. So Paul's point is that the Christian lives a life of total transformation. The Christian cannot think, well, I'm virtuous because I live out this common decency. No, the passage really challenges us here. It pushes us beyond just what is generally acceptable. We live lives of total transformation, self-control, purity, and godliness. And this is what I was saying earlier. We, we, we might think, well, I'm not in that category. I'm not ungodly. Or we could approach it like this. We could say, okay, is a lack of self-control really ungodliness? Is having a trouble, a struggle with my passions, is that really ungodliness? I mean, come on, everybody does that. Should we really view those things as ungodliness? Yes, we should. The Bible highlights sins like lust, anger, covetousness, these urges that not control, these sins are incompatible with the Christian life. And the pursuit of God requires that those things be relinquished. Not that they be minimized, not that they be trivialized. Hey, everybody's got their problems, that they be put to death. 
And not only did we then put those to death, did we add the corresponding virtues. And I would say this then is encouraging. Hey, don't tell yourself the lie that you can't change, that grace cannot change you more into the image of Jesus Christ as this passage sets him before us. So the Christian life goes deeper than commonly agreed upon decency. But let me tell you the other way that Paul imagines the Christian life differs from the Greek virtuous life. Back to the story of Zeus. He actually attained to deity. But the Christian gospel is the exact opposite. It affirms God came down to man. And that it is grace that transforms. That these virtues are formed in our life, not merely by human will and good intentions, but by the powerful grace of God. It saves and it transforms. So if you don't see these virtues in your life, cry out to God for grace. And if you see growth, praise the Lord. That's what we want. But if you see growth, don't think, okay, I've arrived. I can plateau now. No matter how obedient we become, we will always be dependent on grace. The more God's spirit grows us, the hungrier for righteousness we become. I would encourage you if you're younger among us. One of the great benefits of learning Christianity at a young age is that you have so much time to work on these things now. And I'm not giving the impression, hey, okay, you grew up in church, so like when you hit 15 and 20, you're, you're just perfect. No, we, we all struggle. But God has given you such a blessing to have time to work on these things and, and to start now. To not think of passages like this as, as what's for adults or older Christians. We all start working on these things now. Some people, when they come to Christ later in life, Christianity is like learning a second language. and They always speak with an accent. But for those who grow up in church, this is your native tongue. So take advantage of those blessings and opportunities. And as a church, as a corporate body, Let's recognize that we have the opportunity and the obligation to help one another grow in grace. Everyone in this room, in one way or the other, we are putting off ungodliness. We are learning to put on godly living, which means we have to be honest with ourselves and with one another about our struggles and where we might grow. Sometimes we can slip into a pattern of relating to one another as if we didn't sin. I know there's an opposite extreme of being too open and trying to outshame everyone. We don't want to go down that route either. But we all need help growing in grace. We all stand in need of grace. So let's help one another grow. And let's look at the last reason then today. Why do we need grace? Because we need hope. And Paul speaks of that hope in verse 13. He says, all these things are being taught to us while we wait For the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice the opening verse referred to Jesus' appearing to accomplish our salvation, his first appearing. This verse refers to his second appearing when he will complete our salvation and rescue us finally from the very presence of sin. Paul calls this event the blessed hope. He calls it that because it brings blessing, obviously, 
And it is accomplished by the blessed one, God himself, Jesus Christ. Paul defines the blessed hope as the appearing of the glory. Those are the same thing. Our hope is that God will appear gloriously. And when he does, that will be the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice that Paul also draws together God and Jesus. He sees Jesus as sharing the divine identity. If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He reveals, he embodies the power and the majesty of God. And his appearing, therefore, gives us hope. That this is the goal towards which we work towards. This gives us a purpose for living now. And it gives us a hope for a good future. Christ has appeared to accomplish salvation. He will appear again soon to complete our salvation. And so in the meantime, by grace, we live transformed lives for God's glory. And we don't, as I said earlier, we don't stay focused on ourselves. What? Our eyes look to the horizon of the glorious second coming of Jesus himself. And there's one more statement then, this is where I I close it, that gives us hope in this passage. Verse 14, Paul describes one more time Christ. Listen how he describes the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, Notice with that statement, what did Paul do? He boomeranged back to where he started. He talks about Christ appearing to redeem us, the grace of God that brings salvation. He said, and to purify us, to make us eager for good works. God's grace teaches us to be transformed. So why does Paul boomerang back? Does he just want to repeat himself, make sure you didn't miss the main message? I think. By putting the references here at the end, he ends the passage on a triumphant note. He ends by assuring us that what God purposed and came to do, he will actually accomplish. So our salvation is certain. It's grounded in the work of Christ. And it will be applied. And then Christ will appear to complete it. Because after all, that's why he came in the first place. He came to redeem us. He came to purify us. He came to make us his people. His coming doesn't make such things possible. He did what he did in order to accomplish those results, and they most certainly will be accomplished. So friends, grace has appeared. That means there's hope. There's forgiveness. The failures and sins of the past are forgiven. There is hope for change in the present. There is a glorious future to expect. And grace will bring us to that very day, assuring us that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Let's pray for that transformation. Let's give thanks for that grace.